Many of you in this room said, I do, one day. And I'm here to remind you of a very important but very forgettable truth. And that is that the most important day of your commitment is today. It's far more important than the first day you made the commitment. Each day increasingly is more important than the first day, right up until the very last day, which is the most important. Now, I'm talking about your walk with Jesus, but this applies to marriage as well. And the reason for that is by design. Your marriage is a reflection of far bigger truths, far bigger realities than just your emotional fulfillment. Far bigger than you writing a great love story. It's a reflection of bigger things going on. Marriage is a living drama of the covenant shared between lovers. God and his people, husband and wife, devoted exclusively to each other until death do us part. Nothing is more important than relationships. Jesus taught us this by his words and by how he acted. Nothing's more important because think about this, nothing lasts longer than our relationships. And no human to human relationship is more sacred or important than the one that you call husband or wife. And no day is more important in this most important relationship than the very last day. Ecclesiastes 7 says it this way, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting in front of you, or someone may have an iPhone, ask to borrow it for their Bible app and give it back. Metaphors abound for life and abound for this idea of marriage. We've already used the concept of a hike for marriage, and today we're going to use the concept of a race. The Bible talks a lot about racing and finish lines. Uh, almost every single day, I race children. Uh, whenever I leave the house, if there's anyone out front, usually someone bolts out and they race me down the street. I actually leave extra time uh, so cars behind me don't get angry You know that I'm driving six miles an hour racing my child. And, and as a parent who wants to grow my children and prepare them for real life, I'm faced with a tough choice uh, every day, tougher than paper or plastic at the store that used to be there. And that is this, do I, do I let the child win and linger back? Do I make it close but barely win? Or do I just blow them away with a dose of cold reality just and say, you have no shot, I'm an adult, you're a child. This is what I'm faced with all the time. One of your children, who I will leave unnamed, by what's said, you may figure out who it is, if you're the parents, uh, at the camp out last week. And by the way, you guys clean up nice. It smells much better at church today um, than it did last week. And mostly that was me, I'm sure. I'm sure. But uh, I'm racing my son uh, one of the mornings on the camp out, and he's four years old. It's Tate. And one of your children says, oh... I see that you're pretending to race your son, but you're holding back to let him win. 
yes, that's actually what's happening. And Tate is a smart one. We were running, and I said, it's kind of early in the morning, a little early for racing, but kids can race at any time. And I said, where are we racing to? And as he heard me get up closer, he's four years old, he goes, oh, I win. As soon as I was about to, to pass him, that was the finish line, magically. He won. Most kids say, I'll race you to the van, I'll race you back to the tent. He was, he was a smart one. You know, here's what's interesting about life. None of you in this room asked to exist. None of you got a vote on your parents, your birthplace, your DNA. And none of us here set the rules of the game or how to win or where the finish line is. Yet we all hold this in common. We find ourselves racing. We're in a race, even though we didn't ask to be here. God instructs us on racing and finish lines and how to run well. And what I want to read for you in 1 Corinthians 9 applies to life in general, but I want you to overlay marriage on it because it applies to marriage as a subset of this life we're living. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24, says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. There's a way to run a race and a way not to run a race. There's a prize. There is a finish line. There is a goal to this whole thing. Some of you need to hear that this morning afresh. There's a point. Next verse, 25, says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Discipline now means delight later on, delayed gratification. Many of your parents, adults, tried to instill this in you to varying degrees of success. Many of you parents are currently trying to instill this in your children to varying degrees of success. This reward we have never fades. There's a built-in message here. Hear this. For you married people, for people in life, don't be duped by fading lesser rewards. Don't be duped by it. There's an unfading crown of glory awaiting. Not a perishable wreath that's going to, in our day, be a trophy that gets dusty and put in a box in a closet someday. In their day, a living wreath that was put on their head and would wither and die. Look at the next two verses. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In life and in marriage, we should expect difficulties. In life and in marriage... We should say, God, we don't want to live, run, race in such a way as to be disqualified. book of Hebrews also talks about racing. If you'd like to, turn to Hebrews 12. Chapter 11 is a hall of fame of sorts, which fits right into the racing theme. It's a hall of faith for the faithful. And you can imagine walking through the hall of faith of the faithful and seeing an image and a placard of sort of what they accomplished and what they did. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. 
you read each story of those listed. And what Hebrews 12 does is it, it's almost like the end of the display after seeing all these people from the past, all of our older brothers and sisters who have walked this life of faith. Now it's our turn. Us, the ones who are mid-race. There's a message for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, which says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Listen to this. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you are alive today, you have a race to run. If you are married today, what you are building with your spouse will echo for generations to come. Some here, one day, will be married. You're not yet. Your race doesn't begin once you're married. Rather, it's now. The way you run now is affecting what that will look like one day. I want you to consider this, that right here in this church family, in this sanctuary that we gather in week after week to worship, to pray, to give, to hear from God, to primarily what worship is about is receive from God. Right here in this room is a great cloud of witnesses. If you are married, if you hope to be married, look around you. There is a great cloud of witnesses proclaiming to you the beauty, the delight, the protection of heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal love. That's the biblical picture of marriage. A few years ago, The Hendersons had a 25-year vow renewal. Angel and Sandra, who head up our Spanish ministry, a couple of months will be doing 25-year vow renewals. We heard from the Smiths a few weeks ago, 40 years. Rick and Mary Ann Palm in a few weeks are going to do a vow renewal for 40 years. There's actually a couple in our church, and by the way, there's just scores of others as I look around. There's actually a couple in our church, Mike and Ann Flynn. I asked them permission to share this, but here they are bailing on the last marriage sermon with the topic of being faithful by going off on their anniversary weekend to celebrate 34 years of marriage. They let me know they were going to be gone, which I always appreciate, so I don't have to come after you and wonder if you're a wandering sheep. And I said, God bless you. God bless you as you go be faithful rather than hear a message about being faithful. Look at me, young people. This is something to aspire to. What you'll see is couples that sometimes sit together most weeks. Once in a while, there's a space between the couples. That's okay. They're still in church together. Come to these couples. Don't think them perfect, but know that they're ahead of you. Know that they've run the race. Some of you in this room are nearing the the end of the race. I love that we have the generations sitting next to each other week after week after week. Ephesians tells us that the church is supposed to build itself up in love. 
Part of how this happens is that we learn and grow from each other. You know what us older people, and yes, I'm in that camp now, us older people, you know what we love to do? We love to be around young love. There's something about it that stirs in us and sparks in us and, and, and helps us remember what it was like to be young and in love. And you young people, you need older people in your life around you. You need to be intentional about just rubbing shoulders with them and asking them a few open-ended questions. And older people, I would implore you, please be open with your life. There's the ability to share too much, right? So be, be wise about that. Be gracious about that. But this goes on regularly in a very unformed, unplanned uh, sort of way. And it's a good and healthy thing. Jesus affirms what we're talking about. When he was asked about divorce, he goes back to the beginning. He goes back to the genesis of it all. And he basically says this, read your Bible. Remember, if it's important, God wrote it down. He says, what does the scripture say in Matthew 19? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The way he answered questions about divorce, he didn't go into all the side things of, of, of what could or couldn't be. There's arguments today that say Jesus never mentioned anything about this, 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 or this. He didn't mention anything about a lot of it. What did he affirm? He affirmed male and female. That's how God made them from the beginning. And then he said this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It goes back to the first wedding. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want to ask you a question for those of you who are married. For those of you who hope to be married, you can answer this as well. What is the last day of your marriage commitment going to look like? What is the last day of your marriage going to look like? I've actually had the privilege to be there at the very last moment on this earth, of what marriage was going to look like, not the least of which was my parents. My mom is on one side, I'm on the other side, and my dad slipped from here into eternity. And I was there on their last day of their marriage. Here's my question for you. Will it be filled with regret, or will it be filled with rejoicing at walking with grace and crossing the finish line together? Will it end prematurely in divorce? Or will you, by God's grace, fulfill your vow to the end? It is a good and noble thing, that desire in you that says, I want to finish. I want to keep the covenant that I proclaim on my wedding day. That's a good thing. That's a gift from God. Many around you will not highlight that. They will adjust the standard to say, of course there's brokenness and divorce, and so it's okay. And in an effort to make it okay, we haven't held the bar high and said, this is a beautiful, glorious dream that God's put inside of you. Think of how much effort, those of you who are married, think of how much effort goes into your first day of marriage. I mean, how much is there? How many magazines are there? How many blogs are there? How many whole stores are devoted to the first day of marriage, right? Wedding planning and weddings are huge business. 
But think about this. Today is far more important in your commitment of marriage than the first day. So your first day is sort of this speck of dust of importance when weighed on the scale of of how important it is. Is it important to make a vow and say, I do, and commit to each other? Absolutely. But if you break that vow a week later, that didn't really mean anything. It actually carries more importance and gains importance as you go through life. I want to say this because you need to understand that if church is not a place of grace, I don't know where on earth we would go to find it. Hear me really clearly. This is a place of grace. We say this regularly. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are says this. There's probably not a person in this room whose lives have not been probably deeply affected by divorce. Would you hear me as the voice of God saying this? You are welcome in the kingdom of God, if you have made the sin of divorce. Divorce doesn't just happen to someone. You are a participant in it. And part of the healing, part of the restoration, is owning our sin, saying, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. One of the shortest, most important prayers you can offer. So unlike the Pharisee, right, who compares as to all the ways he's better than other people. So even though this is a place of grace, even though we're going to talk about faithfulness in marriage, I understand there's hurt and pain and regret. Hear from God this morning. Don't listen to the accuser. The accuser is going to talk about you, about your shame. He's going to preach the first half of of the gospel to you. You are a wicked, depraved, wretched sinner. The refrain of the gospel is sung over us by God. That's true, and Jesus saves. So hear, um, hear my heart on this this morning, that I am talking about faithfulness, not from a framework of being detached from what you're walking through. But let me say this too. Come as you are, but don't stay that way, says this. Turn your pains into plans. There might be something God has for you today that you walked in here with pain. He wants to bring some healing to that, but he also wants to lead you forward. How do you get to that last day that you're dreaming of, that you want to finish well, that you want to cross the finish line holding hands and still smiling together? Are you just hoping it happens? Will you wing it? Will you wish for it? Or will you plan it? There are things today to be done today that can plan for that final day. My concern today is to help you finish your married race well. And hear this. Every married couple in the room needs encouragement in this. Some of you are doing great, running great, not letting the sin entangle you. You know what's true? Next week is coming. And the week after that, we just talked about seasons, right? Enjoy the season. Run well. But listen carefully because seasons change. Turning your Bibles to Titus 2. This is where we'll be the rest of the morning.
Titus chapter 2. We all know what the great news of God is. There's great news about the great news. And that's this, that God's saving grace has a sequel. God's saving grace is also God's sanctifying grace. You'll notice that a lot of romantic movies end the story at the altar. So they sort of build the story, talk about the highs and lows, and then it ends once they get married. And the truth of the matter is, that's when the story is just beginning. It's after I do that the real story begins to unfold. This is true in marriage, and it's true in our walk with Christ. Was there grace that got you to a saving knowledge of Jesus? Absolutely. Some of you take great delight in just saying, man, God was leading me, he was cornering me, he was honing me, he was coming after me. And one day I heard his voice and I followed. But God's grace doesn't pick up and leave once he gets you to the altar. You'll notice in our title slide for this whole series is Responding I Do to Holy Matrimony. Marriage isn't the invention of man. What God has joined together, let not man separate. It's holy. It's pointing to something so much bigger. As an act of worship, obey. Don't just say I do, respond I do. You need God's ongoing grace because conflict is on its way. The longer you've been married, the more you nod your head at what I just said. That we need God's grace because conflict is on its way. There's a great book called When Sinners Say I Do. Two sinners standing at the altar don't somehow cancel out sin. They multiply sin. So when you have a decked out groom looking probably as good as he will ever look again. And the bride looking as beautiful and radiant as she ever will look sort of in a human standard, right? Because we just get old and wrinkly at some point. Those are two sinners standing in front of friends and family and before God committing I do. And when you bring two sinners together to form a household, there is conflict a-coming. Sometimes people wonder whether or not he or she is right to marry and this and that. And sometimes there's question. We don't know if we should get married because sometimes we fight. And the appropriate question to ask that person is this. Is this the person that you want to fight with for the rest of your life? Because you're going to fight. Some are a lot more, you know, subtle about it. We don't really fight. We just argue or have disagreements. Okay. Is this the one you want to have disagreements with for the rest of their life, of of, of your life? Because that's what you're picking. Can you overcome conflict? Who's the most scary person to do premarriage counseling with? It's two people who come and say, not only, we recognize that that we're both sinners, but it's when one person thinks they're going to fix the other sinner. See the moans? You know what that is? That's like, oh man, I remember being there. That's a dangerous state to be in. Here's another dangerous one. When I ask, if they haven't shared already, how do you guys fight? Oh, we don't fight. Okay, how do you guys have arguments? Well, we don't argue. Okay, let's say there's a disagreement. Oh, we've never had one. Oh, boy. Like, that's where we just go. We have to go back to the very beginning, right? 
Because there is conflict coming. And if somehow you've bottled it up all this time to the point of engagement, man, there's, there's work to be done. So we need God's grace. I love how honest and truthful the Bible is about this. If you read the Song of Solomon, which is an entire book in the middle of the Bible that is devoted to marital love, a full 20% of it deals with conflict. It's not just a Hallmark card sitting in the middle of our Bible. It is real life. So here's the key truth that I want you to write down in your notes this morning. That grace doesn't just get us to the altar, but sustains our marriage for life. Remember, if this sounds an awful lot like what it means to be a Christian, that's because by God's design, your marriage is meant to reflect a picture of Jesus Christ and His people, His bride, the church, disciples of His. So let the picture of salvation be your saving grace in marriage. God's saving grace is also God's sustaining grace. So I close out our marriage series this morning with a call to remain faithful. And I say that to Christians saying, remain in God's gracious hands as you seek to live this out. Billy Graham, who was probably most known for calling people to repent and receive God's saving grace, regularly said this. He said, the grace of God is not just what Jesus did for you on the cross, but what he will do in you when you repent and yield your life to him. Do you hear that? It's not just backward looking. Jesus did something for you to get you in. That's getting to the altar. But it's what he will do in you moving forward. That's God's saving grace and God's sanctifying grace. Same grace. Different focus in its work and effect. The first has to do with forgiving of sins, paying the recompense. The next has to do with holiness being formed in you, shaping you into the very image of Christ. J.I. Packer said this, No need in Christendom is more urgent than the need for a renewed awareness of what the grace of God really is. And as I thought about that for the Christian church, for me as a Christian, I pondered this reality. Because we're talking about marriage, could it be that there's no greater need in all of our marriages than this same thing? A renewed picture, a renewed awareness of what the grace of God really is. And then to respond, I do, in the covenant of marriage. So with that, let me walk through a few verses here in Titus. If you're taking notes, write this down. First, what we see is God's saving grace. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here's something true about God's grace. You didn't create it. You don't manufacture it. You didn't earn it. You can't conjure it up. So what do you do with grace? Put your hands like this for a second. This is representative of what you do with God's grace. You receive it. You just open your life to it. You celebrate it. You live by it. You cooperate with God. And here's what else you do. Watch this. You share it. 
the grace you've been given, give it away. This passage goes on to tell us about this grace of God. And by the way, these are a few short verses in Titus. You read the scripture cover to cover. It's a picture of God's grace being offered to us and how we respond to it. Next in verse 12, we see this, that it's powerful grace. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There's two sides of God's powerful grace in this passage. It's not just that God gives us the power to overcome our past sinful nature. Isn't it true that one of the great difficulties in marriage is we all bring luggage? We just all bring baggage from past stuff. And what we might think was the, the, the hardest thing, maybe one of you carried debt into the marriage. You realize money is just this surface thing over here. What's, what's really deep is the stuff that's gone on down here. We all carry baggage into it. God's grace gives us the power to overcome our old sinful nature. But not only that, He gives us the power to desire and pursue righteousness. You could just as easily call this God's practical grace. Because this lives out every day, even on Sunday. Old sinful man comes flaring up. And God gives us the desire to renounce ungodliness and pursue and have righteous desires and to keep going. That's God's work of the Spirit. Because worldly passions are brought here and because of the culture we live in, let's take the prominence of how powerfully this is seen in the context of sex. To overcome past sinful nature and to desire and pursue new righteous life in the spirit. This gift of sex was given by God. Our bodies are these instruments to express love at a deep and intimate level and to form connection with a spouse. It's an amazingly beautiful picture. And what many people do in the spirit of being duped by a perishable, fading reward, they neglect to take God at His word, and they say, surely there is happiness for me outside of God's plan. And what our culture has done is it has taken this huge gift of sex, and it has compressed it into a tiny box of recreation. If it feels good, do it. And there's not really much more to it than that. And what God is able to do, hear me, there's no sin like sexual sin. It goes to the core of a person. What God is able to do is He's able to heal and restore our sexual damaged past. It's the grace of God at work. Some couples struggle for years and years with sex just being dirty. I don't even want to think about it. I guess we'll sort of engage in it. God's able to unpack that and say, let me restore to you the beauty of the original design. Let me heal you from your past. Child, take my hand. We're going to grow in this. We're going to walk together. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to change you from your mind to the rest of your body. 
The God of grace gives us power to overcome our past sinful desires. He redeems a life of sex gone wrong, capable of repairing the damage we've done. And that's just one small part of marriage. It's a big part of marriage, but it's one part of it. Take that and multiply it. Let's keep going. Verse 13 speaks of future grace. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians have perspective about the now because we know who holds the future. This life is like an engagement to Jesus. There's this full consummation coming when he comes back for his bride. And it's so merciful of our Savior to keep holding out hope of what is to come. While running the race, it's like someone suffering in a race and having a coach with each lap that goes by. Hang in there. Four more laps. Three more laps. Keep going. You've got this. Keep fighting. In the middle of a competition, in the middle of a race, does, isn't it good to know there's an end? Isn't it good to have a coach, a parent cheering you on, saying, it's, you know, keep, keep at it. There's good things coming. Don't give up. Finally, the way I would phrase verse 14 is it's paying grace. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To open your hands and receive the grace and forgiveness of God to repent of your sin is to be bought and paid for. You were a slave of sin. You've now been set free. You've now been set in God's family. Here's the beauty of it, though. The costly grace that was given to you keeps on paying. It's not just that it covered your life of sin before Jesus, and now we're on our own. Remember with Galatians? Who's bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to now finish this out on your own? You can't pick up the check for last week. God's grace keeps paying. Hear me, God's grace is sufficient, married people, to see you through the finish line. Hear me, singles, divorced, widowed, God's grace is sufficient to see you to the finish line. I just want to show you our key verse. We've already sung this, a beautiful line in Counting on Your Name that we just sang. That my life is built on nothing less than than Christ. Jeremiah 32 says this, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. We sang this line, we're trusting you're the way. That they may fear me forever. Listen to this, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. You married people who don't have children yet and hope to one day. You're building your legacy today. Those of you who are parenting and find it a struggle, welcome to the club. What you do today, the way that you interact with God and with each other, is for your own good, but also for the good of the children behind you. I want to have you listen to the grace that is highlighted in this song by Zach Williams. As they sing, just just let the words kind of wash over you 
And consider the part of the one being saved. Consider how this whole work is a work of grace. We're going to get in a minute to our part. Let go and let God has led some people to disaster. I guess I just don't do anything. If, if God wants me to be faithful in marriage, I guess he'll just do it all. It's not how God set it up. But it starts, continues, and ends with this circumference of God's sustaining grace. Listen to this song as the band sings. I tell you, one of the things I love about that song is it takes a very popular cultural message and it does what the gospel does. It flips it on its head. You hear, I'm a survivor. What does that usually point to? The glory of me pressing on, pulling myself up by the bootstraps. I carried on. I'm a strong person. It's sort of this, and, and it feels tired and it feels desperate. What we see in this song is just a complete reversal of that. God, you're the one who pulled me out. You're the one who rescued me. I was in the miry pit and you put my feet on solid ground. We remain faithful in life. We remain faithful in marriage by relying on God's faithfulness. Psalm 37 gives us an interesting word picture. It's to make friends with faithfulness. Go make faithfulness your friend. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as as the noonday. Do you see the interplay that's going on? Christ working in and through us. In this passage on the screen, what you see is this. We have a part to play. What do we do? We trust in the Lord. We do good. We live our life. We make friends with faithfulness. We delight in the Lord. We commit our way and we trust. What does God do? God gives us the desires of our heart. God acts. God brings forth righteousness and justice. So I'll put it this way for our key practice. Remain faithful by relying on God's faithfulness. Here's what I'm hoping to do with that sentence. I'm hoping to capture that we have a part to play in it. But unlike the metaphor of a bicycle where we're pedaling one side and God's pedaling the other side, doesn't that break down? Because God built the bicycle. God's really doing most of the work. That's like having a toddler come and say, here, put your, put your finger on this. He gives us a role to play. We don't sit back and have no role to play. But we're not one half of the bicycle pedal. We are relying on God's faithfulness. And from that, it gives us confidence that we can remain faithful. Jesus had this way of breaking things down, making it incredibly simple. He gives this powerful word picture that's so easy to grab onto. He pictures God as the gardener, and the gardener tends to our lives. And Jesus as the vine. Jesus is the one who is bringing sources of nutrients and life. And what are we? We're the branches. What do the branches do? He says in the Gospel of John, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, abiding in me, you're going to bear much fruit. If God created you, you have been created 
to bear much fruit. If God took two people who were created to bear fruit and He gifted them with marriage, guess what? He put that together. I know you asked her out, but He put that together. Trust me. That marriage has been created to bear much fruit. Abide in the vine. Some people try to go it alone. Self-made people who try to create self-made marriages. Other people find themselves attaching to something other than Jesus. Here's what happens in both scenarios. Both of those dry up, stop bearing fruit, and eventually die. It's not a good picture. Remain faithful by relying on God's faithfulness. This gives us incredible assurance. Again, not just in life, but in that subset of life called marriage. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is Jesus working in and through you that can keep you faithful to the vows you said on your wedding day. If you don't already do this, here's a good practice. Go back and watch your video. Of your wedding day. If you don't have video. VHS. I'm including VHS bro. That's where I'm at. Come on now. You know what you can do? You can sit and try to remember. <laughs> hopefully your vows. Hopefully your vows are written somewhere. Go back and. Go back and see the words you said to each other. At least once a year. To look back and see that. My dad had been married before. And when I came to a, an age, I was probably only 10 or 11. And I remember exactly where I was, 1214 Brenton Avenue in West San Jose. He was in his bathroom. I wandered into his room, and he was brushing his teeth or doing something. And I said, Dad, I said, you've been married before and been divorced. I said, what's to say that you aren't going to divorce this time? What my dad did in that moment, a lot of directions you can go with that, right? If you're a self-made man creating a self-made marriage, if you're an overlord, if you're insecure, if you have what it takes, you bring the fist down. How dare you question me? Maybe some of your dads were like that. I'm thankful for a dad who got down on his knees, he got eye level with me, And here's what he did. He preached grace to me. Basically, he preached what that song just said. He said, I can tell you why it's going to be different. It's going to be different because of the grace of Jesus in my life. It's going to be different because the vow that I made to your mom, this is the mom that attends here. This is the mom that was on the other side of my dad's body as he passed from here into his Savior's arms. And there was something in what he talked about in that moment that gave me great assurance that my dad was not going to divorce this woman, but would remain faithful. And as I study the scriptures and as I look at this, I think, wow, we can remain faithful because of the character of God. You want me to boil down how to be faithful in marriage? 
a couple comes to me and says, Dave, what assurance do we have that, that we won't be a statistic? I don't know what else to tell them except this. Remain in the vine. Abide in Jesus. Build your life on God is not a cliche thing. It's an everyday thing. Abide. That's your role. Receive the grace. Celebrate the grace. Think about the grace. Give the grace away. This is needed in marriage like nothing else. The key resources to help are two incredible books, one by John Piper called This Momentary Marriage. And the subtitle is A Parable of Permanence. Think about what we've been talking about, the fact that marriage is a reflection of something great, greater. You'll kind of get a sense of where this book is going. It gets into the theology of that, that there's a lot of practical uh, exhortation to couples to keep their covenant. Not just finish, because that's what they said they would do, but to finish for the best of reasons. Finish and be faithful as an act of worship. Finish and be faithful because you're a reflection of the God whose image you bear. That's this momentary marriage. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller is just a great book. It's a practical outworking of God's grace in marriage. For those of you not married yet and wanting to start well, let me say this. Your race has already begun. God has entrusted you with the capacity to get into this building today. God just entrusted you with another breath, another heartbeat. It's given you skills and talents, abilities, a rationale, a mind. Jesus talked about small riches and big riches. Talked about being faithful with little. And what he was talking about was money in that sense. Be faithful in little, you'll be entrusted with bigger things like people's souls. You hope to be a husband one day. You hope to be a wife one day. You hope to bear children one day and care for their every need starting from day one. Man, be found faithful right now, right where you are. Your race now is informing what's going to go on 20 years from now. Before I close, let me just highlight something in your bulletins. There's two things. One is sort of a summary sheet. It's the answer key of each week that we preached. We always had sort of a key truth and a key principle, some key verses. And uh, my intent with that, you can do whatever you want with it, but it's made for a size that maybe just fits in your Bible. Some of you have really benefited from one or two specifically of these weeks. Some of you go, this is all good stuff. I'm going to need it in another season. Well, here it is, sort of in a compact form for you. Some of you may want to grab an extra one. They'll be in the back for several weeks. And just hand it to someone. Maybe you know of someone that's struggling. You say, hey, here's, here's a starter. Just start looking up these verses. Hear from God on marriage. Secondly is something of, a, of an evaluation. And what we'd like you to do, and this is totally optional, but we'd like you to evaluate. And the purpose of this, as I clearly lay out, um, is uh, have, have a spirit of, Hey, we're a church family, and even though there's one person generally talking here, except for Frank when he calls things out to me, um, generally there's one person talking here, but this really is a conversation. 
I don't write out word for word and just say things verbatim, service after service. There's a bit of a conversation happening here. And a part of what we want to do is just be able to get some feedback and and invite some feedback from you. So this isn't for you to be an American Idol judge and give the pastor a few pointers. That's not the spirit of it. The spirit of it is to say, man, how, how can we grow together and what benefits you and what doesn't? If you're a quick filler outer like I am, I would have this thing filled out. And by the time I walk out the door, you can hand this to one of the ushers on the way out. If you're a slower filler outer like my wife, you will ponder and give more thoughtful answers. And you could bring that next week. You could bring it to the office. You could take a picture of it, send it in, however you want to do. We're also going to put this digitally on the city um, so that you, can, that you can do it there. Let me invite the band to come on up and let me have Jesus have the last word on faithfulness this morning. In Revelation 2.10, he's talking to one of the churches as he walks to the churches. And I thought about how powerful this passage is for those who are about to get married. He says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Man, that is a great marriage passage. I know he's talking to Revelation 2.10. I know he's talking to a church, and he's talking about some very specific prophetic things that are coming right then and there. But that's true of our Christian walk, isn't it? Hey, my grace saved you. You're at the altar. You've made a commitment. That's baptism. That's your wedding day. Look at what's going on. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Jesus told stories, young women with lamps and oil, managers uh, of, of, of landowners' wealth, and he spoke of the worthwhile, simple goal of being found faithful. He always promised, you don't know when this thing's going to end. But it's a worthwhile, righteous goal to be found faithful. And in Luke twenty-one nineteen, he simply says this, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that you cannot deny yourself. You can't go against your character. We rest in that. We build on that. We return to that. We remain in that. You tell us, stay with it all the way to the end. You will not be sorry. And God, we open our marriages in this room on this morning to you. It's a miraculous, gracious gift that you turned us from single individuals to married people. And we call on you, God, to nurture, to sustain, to grow, and to help us bear fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.